So we're studying this book of Colossians, a small church, inland 100 or so miles uh, from the coast. Paul is writing to the church in a Roman prison, a church he's never seen face to face. He's just heard about it from a man named Epaphras. And so as Epaphras is there ministering to Paul, he talks about the church. Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossae and Laodicea next door. And, and so the issue is the church is doing well, but there are some discordant teachings that are infiltrating the church because they're resident in the city of Colossae, all these type of teachings, and they involve certain strands that involve the following. Strand number one is the earth is not the creation of God, it is a putrid mess made by a lesser deity. And so these people would say when the Hebrews say that God made mankind in his image, that's not true. Man is a colossal mistake. When the Jewish people read the book of Moses, Genesis, and say the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and he said the creation was very good, they're wrong. It's not very good. It is a cacophonic mess. It's a nothingness. Another strand was, it's okay to believe in Jesus. He's, he's one among many. But the important thing is that you worship angels and have visions, and you have all types of aesthetic experiences, and you, you know secret words. But Jesus is just one among many. And another strain would be, to really be made right with God, you've got to keep an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts. So all these things come together, and they're buffeting the church, and Paul writes this letter against these teachings as he encourages the church. And so what did the, did the apostles say, the New Testament writers say, when they heard these things? Well, they just simply rehearsed, loved, and preached the good news of Jesus. Listen to this passage. You've heard it many times, but I'm really praying that, that we would hear it anew today. This is John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known to us. Just in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The profound, simple, mind-boggling, glorious statement of the eternal nature of Christ. And so when, when Paul is writing the church, he, he says something along the same lines. We saw last week how he talked about the eternal Christ who is the creator of everything. When it says in verses 15 to 17 of, of chapter 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones 
or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. The eternal Christ, God among us, the eternal Christ who made the heavens and the earth, the eternal Christ who reigns over all creation. And so we come to the passage we're going to look at today, the eternal Christ who's the redeemer of his people. Starting in verse 17 or 18, it says this. And he is the head of his body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth or in the heavens, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Behold the eternal Christ who is our Redeemer and our King. And so we just listen afresh. We just glory afresh. He is the image of the invisible God, the eternal Christ. We have all these voices. There's a man that you've probably heard of. His name is Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra is um, a man from India who was trained, came to the U.S., did his residency in internal medicine and endocrinology. He became head of a department at a well-known hospital. And then he, he gradually moved away from, from medicine more and more into New Age mysticism, which kind of dovetailed to certain aspects of Hinduism. But Deepak Chopra was interviewed a few years ago, and this is what he said. He said this. He says, making Jesus the one and only Son of God leaves the rest of mankind stranded because we end up worshiping the messenger instead of the message and excluding all theologies that existed before Jesus was born. Uh, there are certain aspects of that statement I'm not conversant with. I don't know what he's saying. Worshiping the messenger instead of the messenger, vice versa. But he didn't go far enough. See, he, he should have said, excluding all theologies that existed before Jesus was born and after Jesus was born. Because the reality of Christ is fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and the sacrificial system and his once and for all death on the cross has established peace between God and men who run to him for forgiveness of sins. Just as an aside, he also has written a book about, about uh, understanding New Testament theology or statements in John 14, 6, the famous statement where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man will come to the Father but by me, which to me is a very understandable statement. So one of, the, one of the aspects of the Reformation that we love so much is that people with an understanding of life can read the Bible, and as the Holy Spirit works in them, they can understand it. And to me, that verse is very understandable. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Boom, that's it. This is what Deepak Chopra says. He says, what does Jesus mean by I? In his Aramaic language, the word translated as can be, I am the I within the I, close quote. So he may be speaking about himself as only a universal spirit. In that case, he can't be squeezed into a body or the span of a lifetime because he's only a spirit. And I thought, that's exactly what Paul is writing back in the book of Colossians. 
Christ is not a spirit. He's a man with a real physical body that rose victorious over a real physical death, and he's eternal, and he's God. So these, these issues, these isms, these heresies just come round and round and round. And this passage causes us to rejoice in the greatness of the Christ. So he says several things in this passage. First of all, he says, he is the head of his body, the church. And he's the beginning. And he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of his body, the church. The head determines movement. The head receives nourishment, pushes the nourishment down. The head the head determines everything. And Paul says he is the head of his body, the church. And he uses the metaphor and he expands it a little bit in Colossians chapter 2. And you're going to see verses 18 and 19. But let me read verse 16 and 17 to set the table. Paul says this. He says, therefore, let no one, because of the cross, okay, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The substance is in Christ. So these are all shadowy things. Jesus fulfills them all. Pick it up here. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or beating your body and the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. And Paul says, you know, if we don't glory in Christ, if we glory in visions or beating our body or something like that, if we, what we can do, we lose connection with the head. And so he's pleading with them in this passage. He says, he says do not lose connection with the head. Be centered on the greatness of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the great creator king. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn. He's the, he, he is the beginning and the end. He says, don't lose. So I ask you or tell you, don't lose connection with the head, Jesus. If you're a believer this morning, you glory in the greatness of Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you speak the wonder of the glory of Jesus. Don't lose connection with the head. And then he says this, and the whole body grows as it should through the ligaments and the joints. As you're nourished, the ligaments and the joints are nourished as you major on Christ. And as I, I think of this, I think of a fact that, that, that when we receive nourishment from Christ and we live the way we're supposed to live, centered on him, we bless other people in the body. And they're encouraged by us as we live faithfully. I was Dealing with this passage, I had staff meeting this week with the pastors, and I read Hebrews 12. We prayed over Hebrews 12, and I went to back to verse 1. I said, you know, look at Hebrews 12, 1, which, which says this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I said, stop. That, that refers back to chapter 11, the, the, the Old Testament saints who long for the coming of Jesus, who died and gone to heaven. I said, so he says, Paul says, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, which refers to people that have died and gone on. And I said, now, I asked somebody, just give me five names. He gave me five. I said, so I want you five people to tell me about someone who's died and gone to heaven who encouraged you in the Lord 
And it was so moving to have person after person say, well, this is what happened. And this person did this for me. And as soon as I said that, I thought of a number of people in my own life that I could just boom, 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 who've died and gone to the Lord. One man said, well, when I was a boy, there was a, a man who continually cared for me and taught me in, in church and told me about Christ. And he showed me what it meant to really love and care for people. It's Carl Schooling who does a great job of that. Another guy said, well, when I was a boy, I would grow up in church. and I sat there many a Sunday, zoned out. <laughs> he said, but many a Sunday the pastor would come up to me and sit down to me and said, I, let me tell you what I was trying to say in that sermon in one sentence. I thought, wow, that's Dean Henderson. He said, he lived for Christ. And as I said, I thought, oh, God, in your grace, when I die and go to heaven, I pray there'll be people. I pray this for you. There'll be people who look at us and say, they pointed me to Christ. They pointed me the reality of the Lord. But the passage goes on and says this. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. Every person here has a sin at this time in their life that easily entangles them. He says, lay it aside and let us run with endurance the race set before us. The key, next phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So you see, if I'm going to run diligently, if I'm going to make the long haul, I've got to be mutually encouraged and I've got to lay aside the sin and I've got to fix my eyes on Jesus. Hold fast to the head, church. Glory in Christ. Speak his name. Sing his name. Worship his name. And he says this, that he is the beginning, which means he has primacy and authority and rule. He's the beginning. He is eternal. And he says this, he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, I want you to, you got to understand the historical context. He's fighting a, a belief that says the earth is a putrid mess. Humanity is a putrid mess. It's a mistake. It was not in the center of the mind of whoever God may be or she be or it may be, wherever that entity is. And Paul says a thousand times no. He says, he says God made the heavens and the earth, and God entered humanity in a body of real flesh and blood. He loved humanity. He embraced them. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose victorious over death with a resurrection body. He ascended into heaven with a resurrection body, and he will forever have a resurrection body, as will we. And it's like Paul is having, Paul's having a, a boxing match with, with, with these people, we call them the proto-gnostics. It says the earth is a, is a putrid mess. And he says, hit them with some body blows. And, but now he brings, when their hands are, and they're a little bit tired, he brings back a right hook, and it's a haymaker. It knocks them out. And the haymaker is this. He is the firstborn from the dead. Boom! A real body. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, the first man, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ 
the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ the first fruits. He is the firstborn from the dead. Heidelberg Catechism says this, question 57. What comfort does the resurrection of the body give to you? Answer, that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ, its head, but also that this my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Next question, 58. What comfort do you take from the article, I believe in the life everlasting, the Apostles' Creed? Answer, that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered the heart of man to conceive and to the praise of God forever and ever and ever. You see, you see, the, the glory, the glory is this, that, that when we die, if we're in the Lord, we go into the presence of the living God. And then on the day of judgment, our bodies and our souls are united and we, we have a resurrection body that will never fade, never get sick, never have cancer, never age. It is there forever and will be with the Lord forever. The physical is very important to God. It, it is a glory. God became a man. Go back to Deepak Chopra. I was reading some articles by him recently. And he, and he says that aging is in your mind. He said, if we could just learn to think well, we could slow or even stop the aging process. And there's a medical doctor wrote in about that, and he said, this is just, just balderdash. This is just silliness. And, and the, truth, the truth is, as I think about the aging process, I want you to hear me. Getting old is tough. Dying, I've seen a lot of people die. Dying is hard. And to say anything less than that is to be disingenuous and silly. But according to the Bible, the reality of the eternal God having a real body and dying a real death on the cross and raising from the dead and going into heaven takes away the horror and the fear of death. If you're in the Lord, to, to die is to be in the presence of God. To die is, is, is to be with him. Paul says to die is gain. Hebrews 2 says that, that because the children share in flesh and blood, verse 14, he himself also partook of the same death through death, he might render powerless the one who had the fear of death, the devil. Render so, so what I'm saying is, is that the, the craven fear of what's beyond the pale, what's beyond this life is gone. We're with the Lord forever in a place of joy and celebration and feasting and partying and glorious worship and glorious projects and, and embracing friendships forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it's wonderful. We can say that because he's the firstborn from the dead. And, and, and so because he's the head of the body of the church, because he's the beginning He's eternal because he's the firstborn from the dead, and we have the hope of heaven. Here's the, here, here's, here's the equation. That equals so that in all things Christ might be supreme or preeminent. In all things, Christ must be preeminent. He's head of the church. He's the beginning. 
the firstborn from the dead. He's the image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn over all creation. All things are made by him, through him, and for him. He's before all things and in him hold together. Therefore, Jesus must be supreme. I want Christ to be supreme in my life. The way I live, the way I spend my time and energy, I, I want that. He's worthy of my praise, and because in him all things hold together. Now, there is a football program in Alabama. And the people who follow Alabama are very sincere about their team, the Alabama Crimson Tide. Uh, I know many people who like Alabama football, and uh, they are very vociferous and bold in their pronouncements. And I'm trying to be nice because it's a week before Christmas, and Santa Claus is coming to town. If I really told you what I've said, that a lot of them can be incredibly braggadocious and arrogant. I'm not going to say that. They're just very bold. But what's interesting, you're around Alabama fans. And they're going to say, man, that was a good breakfast, Roll Tide. I'm serious. That, that, hey, that, that concert of Mozart and Beethoven, Chopin, was beautiful. Roll Tide. I take the enjoy and sorrow and sickness and health and plenty of want, forsaking all those, I'll cling only unto you. Roll tight. I mean, they end every sense of roll tight, and I think it's wonderful. I just get tickled at them. I hope that they don't celebrate in a couple of weeks, but that's beside the point. Uh, I, th I thought about that, and then I thought, many miles to the other side, that in everything that I say, I should end it in my mind. May Jesus be worshipped. May Jesus be preeminent. God, bless my marriage. May you get the glory. God, thank you for my children. May you be preeminent. Lord, thank you for my calling. May you get the glory. Lord, thank you for my health, for my struggles, my health. May Jesus, you be preeminent because one day I'll have a resurrection body. So, the preeminence of Christ should be at the core of my being. Now, I want you to see this verse, this passage. This passage is so, so good. Verse 19 says this. For God was pleased, pleased, beautiful word, pleased. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. ESV says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Pleased. It's a beautiful word, pleased. God was pleased. Before time began in the Council of the Trinity, the living God determined the perfect time when God would be born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So it says Galatians. And so, so in the fullness of time, Jesus came and it pleased the Father. It pleased the Son. It pleased the Holy Spirit. In fact, the passage in Hebrews says, Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. For the joy set before him. Why was the cross joyful to Jesus? Because he was purchasing a vast host of men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation who would worship him forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, I want you to get, God was pleased. God delighted 
in the reality of Christ. God delighted in becoming a man and living among us. Let me read some of these verses that use this word pleased. This is Luke 3, 22. The Holy Spirit descended upon Christ in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus says in John 12, fear not, little flock, for your father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. It is his good pleasure. He's pleased. 1 Corinthians 1.21, Paul's talking about the preaching of the gospel, which he says is foolishness to men who try to work their way to heaven. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. God was pleased. I, I love this verse. It pleased the Father for all of his fullness to be poured into the person of Jesus from all of eternity. That's why we sing with Charles Wesley, a beautiful hymn, the Christmas veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Or we sing my favorite Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. One stanza says, no more let sins and sorrows grow where thorns infest the ground. He came to make his blessings flow for as the curse is found. Another stanza, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Thank you, Isaac Watts, for that great theology. And the answer, the question is, how, how, how was God... What really pleased the living God? Next verse. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Making peace by the blood of the cross. It pleased him. Now let me address this. You'll read some material written by people that call themselves universalists. A universalist is someone who believes that, that in some way uh, all men and women will be in some fashion saved on the day of judgment. That the cross covers everybody's sin. And the position of the church historically has, has not been that. Uh, the position of the church is found in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians, or, or excuse me, Colossians 1. It says, and, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if you continue in your faith. So, so, so it's by faith we're saved through the finished work of Christ upon the cross, and we show that we really are believers if we continue in that worship and that obedience before him. We're not saved by works, but works is the result of our faith. So, so people take this one verse and lift it out and, and put it in a little pamphlet, and it's totally misleading. There is a general reconciliation. The, 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 the benefits of the cross flows to all creation to a degree, but it flows in salvation to those who repent and believe the good news of Christ. And, and so we're going to be reconciled to God in joyful submission and worship because we see the beauty of the cross and the forgiveness of sins. Or we're going to be reconciled to God um, in, in a way of, well, let me read this. This is John Murray. Bowing the knee in compulsive submission 
This will be the reconciliation as it bears upon all. We know from Philippians 2 that every person is going to worship Jesus one day. Some will worship him, if you know Christ, with gladness and celebration. Some will worship him, to quote Murray, in compulsive reconciliation or compulsive submission. It's not glad-hearted, and it's going to be too late for them. And so I, I, I plead with you to run to the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. By his blood, he's made peace by the blood of his cross for those who come to him because he died as their substitute. That's just the gospel. And I plead with you to consider it afresh, to make it your own, to say, this is who I am. May Jesus be preeminent. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of compulsive submission. This is a scene from Germany. And the date is May the 7th, 1945. The Germans sue for peace. That's General Alfred Jodl signing the surrender documents. Hitler has committed suicide. The Nazi henchmen are mostly dead. Jodl will later be arrested and charged with war crimes. He was in charge of the deportation of many Jews from Denmark in World War II and did other war crimes. And he was executed by hanging in uh, October the 16th, 1946. But he signs the, the uh, documents of surrender, a forced submission. This is taken from the deck of the USS Missouri on August or September the 2nd, 1945, that's Douglas MacArthur, and, and two men signed for Japan. One was the acting representative of em Emperor Hirohito. The other was the head of the Army General Yoshijira Amuzi. And when General Amuzi signed the documents of surrender, the soldiers with him from Japan broke down into copious tears of sorrow and shame, which is totally outside of the paradigm of that culture. The document was signed on the USS Missouri. If you remember who president, the president was, a guy named Harry Truman. There were many warships in the harbor at Tokyo Bay, and Truman, who was from what state? Missouri, said, why don't you sign on the USS Missouri? They said, yes, Mr. President, and they did. Let me tell you the rest of the story. So General Yodel, the German, was convicted of war crimes at Nuremberg. He was hung by the neck until he was dead. And as he stood there, before he was executed, they said, do you have anything that you want to say? And his last words were these. I greet you, my eternal Germany, Heil Hitler. He died. I thought, what a horrible allegiance, a horrible idol to give yourself to a heinous, murderous, failed experiment called National Socialism. On the other hand, General Amuzu, high decorated, was convicted of war crimes. He was over some troops in China where there was a mass rape and pillage of China. It's horrible beyond words. Even though he wasn't directly involved, he was a general, so he was sentenced to life in prison and in 1949, 
On the 8th of January, he died of cancer. But during his imprisonment, he heard the gospel of Christ and he committed his life to the Lord. He became a believer. We don't know the last words of General Imuzu, but I'm, I'm, I'm got to think that if he knew Christ, one of his last words could have been, may Christ, who is God, be preeminent. May he get the glory. That's a good way to die. It's a good way to die. So, so either it's going to be in joyful surrender and worship, or it's going to be in a forced submission. We need to tell others about Christ so they can be reconciled to God in true worship. So their sins can be forgiven, so they can spend eternity in heaven and not in, in judgment. We, we need to give so that people can go to the ends of the earth so that other people can hear who have never heard the name of Jesus. So people can live among them and love and care and serve and educate and equip and send out in places we can't go. That's our calling. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the I thank you for just the ability to read the Bible. And I thank you that this man wrote this document from a Roman prison and he speaks to us today. Jesus, I pray that in this church you'd be preeminent in our conversations, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our parenting, in the way we conduct ourselves, in the way we are kind and forbearing in the way we take the gospel to those around us, you would be preeminent, supreme. I thank you that you are the head of the body of the church. You are the beginning. You are the firstborn from the dead. I thank you, triune God, that it was your delight and your pleasure to have all of your fullness found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that you, Lord Christ, have reconciled us to the living God by your death on the cross, your shed blood. Thank you for that. May that bring joy to our heart and laughter to our soul and singing to our lips. If this is our first Christmas as a believer or our 61st Christmas as a believer, may we rejoice in you and be very glad. So, so God, give the glory this day. And move us to be your people in Jesus' name. Amen.